Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to my conversation with two authors of a very cool book. Uh, The book is titled From Bureaucracy to Bullets, Extreme Domicide and the Right to Home, just out in 2022 from Rutgers University Press. Um, This book is fascinating. We're going to get into a whole bunch of things with both of its authors who are here with me today, Dr. Brie Akison and Dr. Andrew uh, Basso, about their book that looks at this issue of domicide um, and specifically what that is, if you may not be familiar, is the idea of homes being destroyed as a result of violence. Um, This is obviously an incredibly pressing issue happening literally right now in the world in a whole bunch of places. And their book deals with that and law and historical cases and brings them all together in this really important um, contribution to help us think about this thing that somehow I was actually quite surprised to learn is not nearly as well theorized or understood or discussed as maybe I would have expected. So Brie and Andrew, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about the book and your work. Thanks, Miranda. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Could you start this off, please, by introducing yourselves and explaining why you decided to write the book and why together? Maybe, Brie, you could start us off? My name is Brie Ockeson, and I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University. I'm also the associate director at the Center for Research on Security Practices, and I'm a Canada Research Chair in Global Adversity and Wellbeing. So, Miranda, my interest in this topic really started about two decades ago uh, when I was doing work in Chechnya and Ingushetia at the end of the Second Chechen War. I was uh, driving around uh, with my team, conducting uh, research, doing surveys, and I was seeing all these destroyed villages and crumbling apartment buildings in Chechnya that had been hit by Russian forces. And as part of my research, I was um, visiting families, and these families weren't just living in tented refugee camps like uh, what we imagine refugees living in, but they were living in um, abandoned factories, empty school buses, and garden sheds. And their homes have been destroyed, and they were really seeking safety and security in these temporary spaces. So this was really the catalyst for my interest in this topic. And I was really interested in home and the meaning of home and really looking more specifically at what happens to children, families and communities when home is destroyed in the context of war. So that, like I said, that was the catalyst for my interest. And I did subsequent projects in Uganda and Palestine and Lebanon and Afghanistan. And the importance of home really stuck out for me. And this became a really critical element of of my lens of what I was doing with my research. Um, I remember in East Jerusalem, I witnessed just the pain of families who had recently watched their homes being destroyed. 
And in speaking with Palestinians and speaking with Afghans and others, um, I talked to so many families who refused to leave their homes, no matter what violence they faced with. Um, I remember visiting a family in, in a Syrian family who had lost their home in Aleppo, and they'd made a new home for themselves in Tripoli in northern Le- Lebanon. And I remember so clearly um, their home. It was a tent. It was a tented settlement in, in northern Lebanon, and their tent had. Uh, a concrete foundation. It had windows. It had plants on the windowsill. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This family has made this home for themselves. Um, and they've really kind of taken this care to create a space um, that's that's comfortable for them, even though it's temporary. And I've remarked, that, I've remarked about this to my colleague, and my colleague actually said that maybe they made it so nice because they know they'll never return. And this really stuck with me because it's these heart-wrenching and complex circumstances that families face when their homes are destroyed. And I always wonder when I when I think about that home, I always wonder if that tent home is still around today. And considering Lebanon's policies that negatively impact families there, I, I probably it probably isn't there anymore. Um, so I really was interested in this topic, and I, I came across Douglas Porches and Sandra Smith's book called Domicide. They wrote it in 2001. And I loved this term. I thought it was amazing. And it really captured a lot of what I was really interested in. Um, in 2015, I met Andrew. We were we met in Calgary in a pub and we found mutual research interests. Um, he, at the time and, and, and today, he's a, a brilliant scholar who focuses on political violence, human rights, transitional justice. And I thought that he really offered this unique and critical perspective on conceptualizing domicide um, as a human rights violation and a crime. So whereas I was able to kind of see domicide from this biopsychosocial perspective, Andrew was able to contribute this element of, you know, international, how it, how it's codified in international law or not codified. Um, And he really helps to situate it as a crime within international law. Um, And so our, com- our the combination of our two research areas really, uh, I think, worked really well. And in, in this, the culmination of that was this book that that we're talking about today. Wonderful. Um, thank you for introducing uh, kind of the driving forces and some of the things that have stuck with you. And in fact, the explanation of both of your sort of focus areas uh, really does explain some of the strengths of this book. And I'm actually quite impressed to learn that you sort of have different angles on this because they're so well integrated throughout the book um, that I sort of expected that you would both be experts in both aspects of it because that's um, how well they go together in the actual book. And I'm sure we'll get into that um, in the interview, getting through hopefully some of the main arguments, if not every amazing, fascinating case in the book. Um, But I think we should probably start off with some definitions uh, to make sure that we have a good foundation for understanding your typology and cases. So can you tell us a little bit more about what precisely you mean by extreme domicide and cumulative domicide? Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll come back to um, Douglas Porches and Sandra Smith's term and how they define domicide. So they define domicide as the deliberate destruction of home by human agency in pursuit of of specific goals, which causes suffering to the victims. Um, And 
the term really, I, I re- like I said, I really like this term domicide and it starts with the prefix domus, which means house in Greek and Latin. And as we know, the familiar terms such as domestic, domicile, domain are all part of this common root of, of domus. And then the suffix side, as we're familiar with as well, it comes from the Latin um, cadere, which means to kill or strike down. And this term, uh, so domicide together, those two, the prefix and the suffix together, uh, really kind of um, challenge other terms like home demolition or home loss. And it specifically indicates that the home or the house is intentionally killed, which is what uh, why I, I really like this term. So in, these, in the study of domicide, the intention to destroy the home is really critical. And it's a term uh, that also echoes other international crimes like genocide. Uh, so by labeling this specific act as domicide, there's a greater chance that, and we'll talk about this in, in, in today's conversation, there's a really a, a better chance that perpetrators may be criminalized and held accountable under international law. So from this term domicide, Porches and Smith actually argued that there's two kinds of domicide. They um, kind of categorize it as extreme domicide and everyday domicide. So everyday domicide is demolition of homes that occurs kind of all over the world and that can affect everyone except the wealthy oftentimes and those who are the perpetrators. And it comes about because of normal mundane operations in the world's economy. So everyday domicide is is things like urban redevelopment, airports, parks, dams. Um, I think we see it when we read in the news about homeless encampments being raised, um, you know, by, by municipalities, that's kind of a common everyday domicide. Um, and it comes, it also kind of makes me think of the term, um, the phrase urban renewal is people removal, this stance of, you know, how urban renewal is oftentimes means that we have to displace people from their homes. So by contrast, um, to everyday domicide, there's extreme domicide. And extreme domicide refers to major planned operations that occur more sporadically in time, but they often affect larger areas and they change the lives of considerable numbers of people. So the act of extreme domicide is is really a unique form of trauma. The victims aren't killed, but rather experience the destruction of their home after being physically and oftentimes violently removed from it. And it's really marked by an element of political violence. And so we took this term, this kind of definition of extreme domicide from Porches and Smith, and we emphasize the political violence part of it, that it's in, these homes are intentionally destroyed as a result of some sort of political violence that's happening within the, the state, within the community, within that, that area or that geography. So those are, that's how we define it and kind of took Porches and Smith's definition and expanded it. And I'll just mention cumulative domicide as well. Um, this is something that we came across as we were looking at domicide and we saw domicide um, happening in all these different places. But then we were seeing some populations being impacted by domicide over and over again. So we coined the term cumulative domicide, which is, as it indicates, a domicide that, that's being repeatedly perpetrated against a population. So populations can be dispossessed of their homes and forcibly displaced. They may be displaced again. Their homes might be destroyed again. And they never are allowed to become rooted in any community. And so one example of this is from Syria and Syrian families who lost their homes in Syria. 
and they experienced domicide, extreme domicide in that setting. And then they, a lot of them fled to places like Lebanon, which is a place that I've, I've done quite a bit of work. And in Lebanon, they're actually living in these precarious housing situations. And due to a combination of, of local violence um, and, and laws that exist, they are experiencing displacement multiple times there. So the families that I've talked with lost their homes in Syria. They're living in Lebanon. They're living in precarious housing. And a lot of times they've lost their homes in Lebanon as well. And it is this cycle of just cumulatively losing, losing, losing their homes over and over again. And um, that's why we termed, we, we use that term. Hmm. Thank you for explaining um, that both with examples and kind of breaking down the origins of it, particularly given sort of the suffix of side. Um, one would think that like other things with that suffix, perhaps, for example, genocide, um, there would be all sorts of laws preventing this. I mean, cumulative domicide, um, among others, certainly seems like it sounds like a war crime in a lot of ways. Um so, Andrew, could you tell us maybe about the legal side? How do the laws of armed conflict protect homes? Absolutely. I think this is one of the interesting gaps in international law that we found throughout this project is that there is a loose overlapping consensus is what we're calling it on the human right to home and protecting homes, not only in times of armed conflict, but also broader processes of political violence like crimes against humanity and genocide. So let's walk through that from laws of armed conflict all the way to crimes against humanity and genocide. In terms of the laws of armed conflict, home, it has often been a primary target of violence during armed conflicts. Historically, the defeat of armies, this includes the conquering of an enemy's capital city uh, and or you know the, the countryside. This is either to meet the objective of holding key parts of an enemy's territory, and it can also be to strike terror into um uh, 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 occupied persons uh, if, if, a, if an occupying army decides to destroy homes. In terms of Geneva law, that is laws that protect participants in war, the greatest protection for homes in international armed conflicts is found in Article 53 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. It states that when properties are of a non-military nature, so, you know, homes, uh, these, these sorts of properties, they should not be destroyed unless there is a clear military necessity to do so. This really rings true with the whole purpose behind the Geneva Conventions, which was to make war less brutal for combatants, non-combatants, and place control on war makers. So home or civilian properties or properties of a non-military uh, necessity, um, they were supposed to be out of bounds. We can think of this as properties that are legitimate to destroy in warfare. They could be part of the harm apparatus. It's entirely legitimate to destroy the homes of uh, soldiers on a military base, that is a barracks. But it is entirely illegitimate to destroy the homes of a munitions factory workers. While workers are at a munitions factory, they are part of the harm apparatus. That harm apparatus can be targeted, but when they go home, to their private residence, 
they are not to be targeted. Their properties are not to be destroyed. So that all being said, homes and their civilian occupants, they should not be military targets. There are various articles in the Geneva Conventions uh, beyond Article 53 of the Fourth. Um, Article 33, it states that reprisals against protected persons, that is non-combatants and their property, that's prohibited. So there are general prohibitions on pillaging. Uh, there are general prohibitions on intimidation and terrorism. And as as well as mass population transfers and deportations. The 1977 additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, they offer more uh, uh, broad-based protections for uh, civilian prop populations and their properties, and that constant care should be taken to spare civilian populations and civilian objects. All of that to say that in Geneva law itself, that is the laws that protect people and places, there are laws on the books already that protect homes in international armed conflicts, in armed conflicts of a non-international character, that is civil wars or wars that are uh, part of common article three to the Geneva Conventions. There are few protections for home, if any. Um, and with the rise of civil wars and armed conflicts of a non-international character being sort of the new norm in warfare, this means that homes, they are directly in the crosshairs of many combatants. In terms of Hague law, that is law that affects the conducts of hostilities, there are general prohibitions on um, indiscriminately and intentionally bombarding cities and towns. Uh, you may not destroy homes. You may not destroy civilian properties. Um, that said, those gaps for armed conflicts of a non-international character, they're still there. So the destruction of homes, it can generally be seen as a war crime. Now, what about a crime against humanity? Well, crime against humanity is slightly different. Um, a crime against humanity, that's a widespread or systemic attack against a civilian population. Certainly, some aspects of crimes against humanity, including murder, extermination, and forcible deportation, that could apply to situations of domicide. But the specific destruction of homes, the intentional destruction of homes, it is not considered a crime against humanity in international law. And for processes of genocide, it is often that perpetrators, uh, they have to remove populations from their homes in order to perpetrate their atrocities elsewhere. So in that sense, what I'm trying to say is that domicide and atrocity crimes, they are often cooperative mechanisms, but these massive gaps in international law, they still exist. So we believe that there actually has to be a criminalization of domicide in international law as a discrete crime in and of itself. Given the gaps that you've just explained to us, um, I think our listeners will be beginning to understand why that makes sense. Um, and certainly later on, I'm going to be asking the both of you about um, specifically what you both are recommending um, for a convention like that um, and maybe where some future work will be. Um, but I want to kind of start with uh, or continue with, I suppose, um, that gap that, Andrew, you've mentioned and that you've both kind of talked about of there's some existing things happening, but this book is expanding. This book is building on that. This book is really doing a lot to further our conceptualization and understanding. Um, and one of, I think, its biggest contributions is the typology of extreme domicide in the book. So could you introduce um, this typology to our listeners, maybe with some examples to demonstrate the different areas? 
sure, I can do that, Miranda. It's it's really interesting that when you're saying that that the book is kind of expanding and and it's it it really is the case when when Andrew and I started to write this book, um, it we had this vision of what it would look like, and we applied this topology and then a causal pathway, which Andrew's going to talk about in a, in a few minutes. And it what we found really was interesting is that um, we found that the cases that we chose to illustrate the point really move around a lot, and it just made us think more about how complicated these contexts are and these set situations are. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of walk, walk the listeners through it a bit so they can see what I mean. So we first developed a topology of extreme domicide, and this was a way for us to really, we wanted to choose case studies that would illustrate our point and that would show a range of different kinds of um, elements of domicide uh, in the book. So we first started with an x-axis, so kind of a, a left to right axis. Um, and we use the terms we use the terms bureaucracy and bullets as kind of the extremes of that x-axis, um, and so the uh, that's the methods that the perpetrators use to enact domicide. So bullets is how we label direct violence. This involves physical destruction of home using weapons and other kinds of means, so bulldozers, uh, bombings, things like that, and this is. I think maybe an easier way to recognize domicide. We can see, okay, the, the bomb drops and a home is demolished or a bomb drops and this apartment uh, building collapses. And that is just a very clear cut way of saying, okay, this is the destruction of home. This is domicide. Bureaucracy is a little bit uh, different. This is how we label indirect violence. And indirect violence really involves creating conditions by which the home dwellers are forced to leave their homes or they're subjected to their homes being destroyed in this way. Another term we use in the book is lawfare, which is basically using law as a weapon in, in war and political violence. So we found that um, a lot of the cases could be a range of different kinds of methods. So, uh, you know, we found that, that in some cases, um, I'll just give the example of Syria, that it can actually be both bullets and bureaucracy. So in Syria, there's widespread, there was widespread destruction of homes. Human Rights Watch called it the wiping of neighborhoods off the map. They were just areas that were just completely raised uh, by uh, by, by weapons. And this is obviously direct violence, but this direct violence was coupled with indirect violence or bureaucracy. And one of those examples is law number 10. Uh, law number 10 was enacted by the Syrian government, and it was a means to really confiscate and redevelop returning residents' homes uh, if they weren't able to submit certain documents. So law number 10 came out and it said that any Syrian who owns a home in this area has to uh, file a petition or submit paperwork that says that this home is yours, that you own this, this, this land, you own this house, you own this apartment. And um, law number 10 said, if you're not able to do that, then the government is going to take your land, take your home, take your, this place from you. And obviously Syrians, you know, millions of Syrians have, have fled uh, Syria and they were unable to go to this office and submit this paperwork. And so the idea was that law number 10 would basically dispossess 
all these people who had fled the country uh, of their land and they would never be able to return to their homes. So this is a really kind of a sinister and and all, and just as damaging as the direct violence in terms of, of people losing home and uh, a, another element of domicide. Um, on the y-axis, we have partial destruction and total destruction. So partial destruction is, is of the individual home and this means that the structure remains, but the people have been removed. So there are, are certain, um, you know, this could be bureaucracy or bullets that people have abandoned their home or they've been forced to leave. Uh, abandoned is a bit, uh, is, is a different kind of term. I think that people are, oftentimes it's not that easy, right? Or most of the time it's not that easy to leave one's home. Um, and then total destruction of, of home is, is, again, a bit more clear cut. It's that the home is just demolished, it's non-inhabitable, it's annihilated or raised. So the result of that is that we have, you know, homes, communities that have been flattened and, and homes that have been, are just gone. Um, for partial destruction, the result end result of that might be abandoned homes. It might be homes that are empty, um, or it might be um, homes that have been reoccupied by other uh, inhabitants. So we see examples of that. Maybe a good example is our case study on on Cyprus, where people were forced to leave their homes, and then their homes were inhabited by other people. Um, we're seeing that in Palestine, where um, Palestinians are being forced to leave their home, and then their home is being maybe taken over by uh, Israeli settlers um, in that case. So there are lots of different examples of how this um, kind of topology plays out. Um, and I think the the main point of it is that it really does, uh, a lot of the cases really fit in multiple uh, sides of the topology. A lot of cases of domicide are not just direct violence, but they also are coupled with bureaucracy. Um, or indirect violence. And a lot of cases are also a, a combination of, in, of partial destruction and total destruction as well. So while the topology was useful for us to choose our cases, at the end of the book, we actually explain that, uh, you know, the cases really do actually move around the more the more closer you look at the cases, at the, um, at the uh, kind of the intention of the governments or the militaries who are causing the domicide. Mm. That's actually something that I found um, really helpful about the typology was that it allowed one to look at a conflict and go, okay, well, there's a lot of domicide happening here. How do I make sense of it? Because it just looks like kind of a lot of a thing. Um, and I found the typology really interesting in being able to look at, okay, well, how did, what was enabling this to happen? Was it physical force? Was it law? Was it a law that enabled physical force? You know, what were all the, it allowed the unpicking of something that otherwise kind of looks like, you know, from looking at it, that it's complex, but how exactly can you start to untangle it? Um, I, that's one of the reasons I think this is a really interesting contribution because it allows for that um, you know, not kind of the overgeneralization of let's put a case here and that's where it stays forever, um, but kind of giving the tools to understand um, what's happening. Uh, but you don't stop there because you also talk about kind of how we get to extreme domicide, not just how we should look at it once it's happened. Um, so, Andrew, could you maybe tell us about the causal pathways that the book discusses to lead us to extreme domicide? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the typology, it sort of answers the, the uh, who, what, when, where, and how questions. The causal pathway, it answers the why. Um, but the typology, it gives you, uh, what we were hoping for is, is it, it offers a, a, a new method for talking about these, uh, these horrible processes of destructions of homes. But then the why part, this causal pathway, we really did a lot of inductive casework here, and the causal pathway reflects that, that uh, the pathways that, that we identified are directly from all of, uh, all of our uh, historical and contemporary casework. So let's walk through it. There are really three main categories in the um, pathway to extreme domicide. And the first one is about context. It's the way we defined it is it's the structural background that makes domicide possible. And one of the first things we started with was demographic differences. Uh, demographic differences, they are based on a wide array of identity markers. You know, while the genocide convention and other pieces of international law are quite restrictive in what, uh, what identities uh, we should focus on, we just keep it wide open because identities at the end of the day, they are socially constructed and they only really take on meeting with discursive and physical acts. Now, those discursive and physical acts, they allow for the construction of in-groups. So that is groups where that perpetrators deem worthy and out-groups. That is groups that perpetrators deem unworthy or illegitimate. This is a classic classification of people. Um, and it should be noted, though, that the logic of violence, it doesn't take root just because of simple demographic differences existing. Differences, they offer a structural opportunity for perpetrators to politically exploit, however. So let's move on down the line into intergroup power asymmetries. That power asymmetries, they are an important structural variable. They allow us to understand how much power groups have and whether one group can assert dominance over another. For campaigns of direct violence, that is bullets, we understand power is the ability to project violence into the territories of another group using uh, state or non-state forces, you know, the police or the military, let's say. For campaigns of indirect violence, bureaucracy, we understand power is the ability to legislate outcomes upon another group. This includes using the law as a weapon, as Bree has talked about with lawfare, and continually repressing targeted populations using these very bureaucratic methods of violence. Moreover, we have uh, further on down the line, a heterogeneous population distribution. This was actually one of the more interesting things that we found that I don't think this has really been fully developed in studies on political violence yet. Um, it's that when there's a heterogeneous distribution of populations, uh, that means two or more demographic groups living in close proximity to each other. It's not that they're always going to be in constant conflict by any means. It's that that by merely living together or being or living beside each other it means that political elites can come in and establish violent systems saying one group has a right to be here while another does not so domicide in that sense it's about cleansing so what are you cleansing well a heterogeneous population of uh, population distribution and how do you make that all real? Well, perpetrators, they often construct intergroup grievances. Uh, these are some of the most important markers on the path to extreme domicide. Uh, these grievances, they're often constructed in um, historical um, 
uh, I was about to say realities, but constructed so historical realities that perpetrators, they, they see history and they see the present in specific ways that for them, they say it's a, it's a, it's a historic battle between groups and only one can live here. One maybe is constructed as being uh, illegitimate, let's say. If those contextual variables are fulfilled, then we can move on to a, the triggers, that is the precipitating events to domicide, that the disruption of established sociopolitics, what we mean by that is the disruption of established institutional frameworks, that when these stable institutions are upended, then in a moment of institutional crisis, it's much, uh, much easier for perpetrators to implement systems of violence. Perpetrators, they often construct exclusive communities. Now, I'm not just talking about the construction of different identities, but I'm talking about the construction of future utopias or, or uh, identity-based utopias in the minds of perpetrators where there are homogenous communities, where the traces of one community are erased and replaced with another. And then finally, of course, I've talked a lot about elite actors. It's the response of people in power. And what we're drawing on here are some classic elite actor theory elements that elite actors, they are the ones who decide what method of violence can be utilized to achieve their ends of homogenization and the destruction of homes. I think it's important, though, to recognize that the decisions of these elite actors, they are not necessarily predetermined by the structures they reside within and perhaps those structures that they create. Rather, there's a strong element of contingency to this decision to perpetrate political violence. Um, contingency being perpetrators, uh, they may live in stable institutional frameworks for a number of years, and then all of a sudden those institutions are upended, and then they exploit those institutional upendings to create their violent utopias. And finally, once all of these variables are fulfilled, then we get to extreme domicide. And Bree has already spoken about uh, the magnitude and method of, of domicide, so I won't uh, I won't beleaguer the point too much. But I will say that um, how we were able to construct this causal pathway using this inductive casework, I think we have both of the mind that this is a general theory that can be applied anywhere. Thank you for breaking down that pathway into kind of its specific steps. I think that makes um, it much clearer sort of how we end up in this place. And it does really show how domicide fits in with understandings of other forms of political violence, which in some ways makes the gap in the law even stranger um, because it is related to other things that we know more about. So I'm very glad that the both of you have are helping us figure this out so we can add it to our knowledge. Um, but this book, for listeners who haven't read it yet, uh, is not just theory. As both of our authors have mentioned, it has a number of cases that help us look at this in practice and pick this apart. So, um, Andrew, could you maybe tell us a bit about how we can use the typology, how we can use the concepts and theories to see connections, to create understandings between cases that maybe otherwise we wouldn't be able to make those links? For sure. I think one of the most prominent strengths of the book, in my mind, is that we took the time to do eight case studies spanning many continents and centuries, political systems and people, and magnitudes and methods of domicide. And this typology and causal pathway that we created, we were only able to do that because of this, this casework. 
and these cases, they were really selected on those that were the most different in our mind. That is cases that are dissimilar in as many ways as possible with the same end result. And that end result was domicide. So through that casework, we created that theory. But I think one of the one of the other strengths is that just like you alluded to, we can link violent processes together across space and time. That, for instance, a glaring example of lawfare would be the removal of the Cherokee population uh, in um, uh, Georgia and Alabama and the Carolinas in the southern United States and the Trail of Tears process out to uh, what is now Oklahoma. And... In that process, the lead up to it, the government of the United States used many Supreme Court cases that were states uh, from individual states or all the way up to the federal Supreme Court to justify what they deemed uh, or called verbatim Indian removal. Um, And through these processes of bureaucratic exclusion, then the United States, it justified its removal of about 16,000 people. Similarly, these processes of bureaucratic violence, you see some elements of this in Myanmar today, that the Rohingya Muslim population, they are perhaps the most discriminated against minority population in the world at the moment. Uh, according to many, uh, there's, a, there's a strong argument that can be made that uh, the Rohingya Muslims, they've uh, been targeted and victimized with genocide uh, by, the, by Myanmar. And leading up to processes of domicide and genocide in Myanmar, Rohingya Muslims, they were systematically stripped of their right to citizenship once that happened. That meant that the Rohingyas effectively had no standing in front of the law or in in the law in Myanmar. That meant that they had no legal remedy to any of the bureaucratic impositions that then paved the way for these violent genocidal and domicidal processes against them. Now, the British, uh, the British um, intervention in Kenya in 1952 due to the Mau Mau uprising, uh, that led to widespread violence against uh, the Kikuyu, and this was, uh, inclu- and that included using you know World War II era surplus bombers to bomb Kikuyu villages to break the back of decolonial resistance, and this is in 1952, and and decolonization was on the horizon, yet the British still found it a propitious idea to use violence to hold on to the colony um, by any means necessary, with only just a few years remaining until decolonization. You see similar levels of violence uh, elsewhere in the world. I mean, certainly uh, to terrorize and and, uh, pummel populations into submission. Uh, Russian forces, they did that in Chechnya through generations, uh, both in the 1940s with the removal of uh, Chechen and Ingushetian and Crimean Tatar uh, populations under Stalin and the Chechen wars in the 1990s. All of these processes, it's not like these processes are new in conflicts today. The destruction of homes, this has often been a central aspect of breaking resistance or of removing populations, or it's been a, an important step in the perpetration of mass atrocities. So I think just to wrap all of that comment up, and Bri, I'm not sure if you want to add to this or not, um, but 
I think what we were trying to do with this book is we were trying to offer a new language to international law and foreign policymakers to understand domicide as an international crime. And I think through the typology and the causal pathway and and seeing similarities and dissimilarities through various cases, um, I think we're, we're able to see the violence of what has been done and what is being done now and how we can derail these processes of violence and how we can stop them in the future and ban them in the future. Bree, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think exactly what Andrew said in terms of we hope that this causal pathway and the topology can give some sort of um, framework by which to identify uh, this from happening and prevent it. And so, uh, you know, the phrase the past is prologue, I think is really accurate here where we can say, okay, this has happened in the past in these specific ways. And in, in our, in the book, we actually lay out how all of these case studies really follow this causal pathway. So if we can identify those things then we can perhaps prevent domicide from happening, of course, we want to, pers- we want to persecute, see people persecuted and governments who engage in domicidal activities to be held accountable, but better than that would be to prevent it because then people's homes would not be lost. Hmm. That would definitely um, be ideal. But unfortunately, as the book uh, details and Andrews, you've just uh, given us more insight into um, domicide, unfortunately, is currently happening and has happened in the past. And so in addition to preventing it, we also have to think about um, kind of the consequences of what's already happened and what is currently happening. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciated that the book spoke to, and Bree, you've mentioned this a little bit already, um, is that perhaps at an initial glance, the obvious sort of quote solution is, oh, well, they can go home and rebuild their houses. Um, but in reality, it's much more complicated than that. And I really appreciated that the book goes into it. So Bree, I was wondering if you could tell us more about why returning home is more complicated, more problematic than it initially sounds? Yeah, this is this is very tricky too because uh, this is also dependent upon you know this is going to look different from context to context and person to person. So, and this is assuming that returning home is a goal. I think at least the families that I've worked with and people I've spoken with. Um, many of them want to return home. And that's, that is a goal. That would be something that they would want to do. But, and some of them will definitely feel like, oh yes, I can actually return home. I'm just waiting. And this is why we see so many uh, refugees in neighboring countries because they're waiting to go home. We see this in Ukraine where we have uh, uh, re- Ukrainian refugees living in, in next door countries so that they can go back when the fighting ends. We've seen it in with Syrian families as well, living in Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, right? Um, but again, is, is can anyone ever return home, I think is the big question. And what does justice look like to someone who's lost everything? What does it actually look like to return home? So it really has to be imagined from those who are most impacted. Um, can home ever be reconstructed? If you build it, will people come if, if home is reconstructed in that way? So home is much more than just a structure. It's, it's really the people, the culture, the history, the memories, and these things can never be reconstructed. Um, so we are, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the next question, but this Convention Against Domicide that we're proposing in our book is really about um, holding people accountable, but also it includes elements of 
documenting home and home loss because people might be able to return home and might be able to reconstruct their homes once war has ceased. And there are some efforts being um, being done to combine community-based mechanisms of uh, tracking home loss and, and return to home. So there's one called the Aleppo Project. It's an online collaboration that's based out of the Shattuck Center on Conflict, Negotiation and Recovery at the Central European University School of Public Policy. It collects information on um, the city of Aleppo, as the name implies, both before and after the city was destroyed. And it creates maps and visualizations of the city in order to serve as a starting point for discussions about reconstruction once the war is over. So the goal is to collect information on the past, what Aleppo looked like in order to capture some vision for the future. And I think these kinds of community-based mechanisms in combination with more of the high-level international uh, mechanisms that we're proposing with the Convention Against Domicide are is a way that can actually help um, provide some justice to people, some sort of resolution. But again, I'll and I'll kind of conclude by repeating what I start, said in the beginning that some people can never really return home to this home that they remember, this home that is including the people, culture, history, and memories, because that is unfortunately destroyed in the context of war and in the context of domicide. Hmm. Thank you for. Um explaining that to us and kind of drawing some of these pieces together. Um, But before we get to the proposed convention against homicide in the book, Andrew, I was wondering if you could tell us anything more about what has been done so far, what has been attempted in the past to address impacts of domicide. Yeah, it's an interesting question because domicide, as we've established, it is not a crime in international law right now. And the treatment of repairing the loss of home, um, that's really seen as a matter of policy, not as a matter of fundamental justice at the moment. And that's a major gap. So in all of our cases, we have a concluding chapter where we talk about some of these efforts for for justice, that um, some cases it means that uh, little has been done to rebuild homes. but there's a sort of historical justice in, in talking about crimes. Um, you know, that certainly applies to the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya with, with a greater consciousness um, in, in the British public opinion about, about uh, former colonial crimes. In a place like Cyprus, that the green line that divides uh, Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, it still exists. And it, it's it's probably not going away anytime soon, even though a number of Cypriots have indicated that they would be interested in in forwarding peace plans and forwarding uh, sustainable peace goals for the island. Um, it appears that there's no political will for that at the elite actor level. So um, a lot of the properties in Cyprus, I mean, they, they still remain forcibly vacant. For a population like the Cherokees in the southern U.S., which are who are now in Oklahoma, there is no chance of a return of Cherokee homes in their traditional territories. Um, there was an apology offered to um, the Cherokee Nation in, uh, I believe it was 2009 or 2010 by President Barack Obama, but it was buried in a Department of Defense Appropriations Act. Uh, not quite what you're looking for in terms of a political apology. Uh, it was more of an adjunct apology, if anything else. 
certainly in other places um, like Palestine, it's it's all about documenting a domicile that happens. Um, not entirely sure what the what avenues for justice exist. Uh, the Russo Russo Chechen uh, political alliances and at the current level or at the current uh, state of affairs by Vladimir Putin and uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who's president of uh, Republic of Chechnya, that really has derailed almost any sort of potential for justice for the Chechen community. Uh, instead, it's elite actors enriching themselves. There were legal proceedings of, about the war in Bosnia and, and certainly the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia placed a number of leading war criminals uh, on trial for uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide. But few of these cases uh, actually focused directly on the destruction of civilian properties. Um, and then in current conflicts, I mean, it looks like perpetrators of domicide in Syria are going to escape justice. Um, not only Syrian perpetrators who wipe neighborhoods off the map, as Brian Human Rights Watch said earlier, but also Russian perpetrators who, uh, you know, Russia intervened in Syria in, I believe it was 2015, and almost immediately started a campaign of terror against uh, Syrian properties and, uh, and persons. Um, a number of those Russian commanders that were in Syria and instituted those plans, they're now in Ukraine doing the exact same thing. Uh, domicide left unpunished leads to more domicide. And then lastly, just to finish it off, in Myanmar, uh, like I said, the Rohingyas are one of the most discriminated against po populations in the world, and uh, there appears to be almost no avenue for justice for the Rohingyas right now in terms of returning their properties. So it's it's really a, uh, a sad state of affairs in terms of justice for domicide right now. Uh, that's why we do need to do something about it in, in international criminal law, in my mind. Well, so let's turn to what should be done about it. Um, and there's sort of a number of different pieces of this in the book. So I was wondering, could we perhaps start with reparations? What should or could that look like in future? Yeah, reparations campaigns are interesting. That reparations, it's, it's extremely difficult and... Sometimes it's a it's a moral hazard in and of itself to place a dollar value on human suffering. Um, but the way I explain reparations whenever I'm talking about them, it's that doing nothing is unacceptable, even though doing something might also be distasteful or unacceptable in its own right. Um, of the two, it's better to try to do something to get some sort of justice or at least get the justice that you can. Um, in terms of reparations, then, there's a, a, a document in international law called the Basic Principles and Guidelines on the Right to Remedy and Reparation for Victims of Gross Violations of International Human Rights Law and Serious Violations of International Humanitarian Law. It was signed on uh, December 16, 2005. What that calls for is that anybody who has experienced a, a gross or flagrant human rights violation, they have a right to remedy and they have a right to restitution. So what could restitution look like for domicide? Well, I think there are, there are three real major conditional factors here that 
first, we would have to establish where the rights violation took place or where uh, domicile took place. That's to establish currency. That's, that's a pretty easy one. The second one, this gets a little bit harder, who or what organization committed the violation? And you have to ask that question to establish who or what, what entity is liable to pay these reparations. And finally, three, and this is the most difficult one, is what types of rights violations took place? Are we talking about the total or partial destruction of homes? Uh, What other... Uh, intersectional violence uh, took place against home dwellers? What other broader processes of atrocity may or may not have taken place? So I think if we ask ourselves those three questions, then we might arrive at some potential uh, dollar figures for reparations. Now, beyond those considerations, reparations for domicide they should be contextualized. I would love to say that I have a dollar figure for you, or I could have a clear answer on what a reparation would look like. Uh, But in the course of our research, I don't think either of us came up with that dollar figure, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, I don't think it's possible to establish a universal baseline for the loss of home or a universal baseline for human suffering. It's based not only on varying values of homes, but also... Um, that, and this will be one of the least controversial things I've ever said, that there's a severe inequality in the world, that not all states can afford a universal baseline reparation. Thus, any reparations for domicide, they have to be context-specific. But reparations for domicide, they should be treated holistically. It's not just about the loss of home. It's about the processes of violence that intersected with this too. And it's also about the things that home represents, both in material and ideational ways. In terms of material ways, that a dining table that has been passed down from generation to generation, that may have a dollar figure assigned to it. And you can replace that dining table with that dollar figure but you cannot replace the original ideas, the the meanings around that table. Uh, That can apply to various items in a a home. So reparations for domicide, we can quickly go down the road of of, um, sort of a, a seemingly inhuman calculation over human suffering, but I think there there is a strong foundation for saying we do need reparations for domicide. It's just what these things look like. It's extremely context specific. Hmm. And I think that that's really important, right? To have a framework of the pieces to think through um, how to create some sort of uh, context specific number or solution, um, but also remembering that there isn't kind of one number for everything. Um, So thank you for kind of taking us through that. And similarly, um, could you tell us about the book's proposed convention against domicide to fill the gap in the law? Absolutely. That this is one of the things that I think uh, Bree and I, I'll, I'll speak for you, Bree, on this one. I hope you don't mind. But uh, I think this is one of the things we are the most proud of in this book, that we propose a convention against domicide. And... This convention against domicide, it broadens the scope of our understandings of the loss of home in international law. Recall back to when I said Article 53 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, it bans the practice of destroying homes 
outside of a military necessity. Um, but there are scant other protections for homes in international law. What this convention would do is broaden the scope to say just this overall practice of intentionally destroying homes. It is illegitimate and it is morally indefensible. That a convention against domicide, it should reflect the diverse magnitudes and methods of crimes that we learned about in our study. And it should also reflect that there are three main things that happens to, happen to homes in domicide. Homes that are either raised to the ground, they are left intentionally vacant, or they are absorbed and assimilated. In terms of raised to the ground, an excellent example of that is Syria, left intentionally vacant, Cyprus, or absorbed or assimilated, uh, the removals of the Cherokees, let's say, and their, their properties and homes were demolished and sell, sold off to settler populations. That a convention against domicide, it, it starts to chip away at the impunity gap. That Raphael Lemkin, and for those of you, uh, the listeners who study genocide, that name should be, be very familiar. He's the individual who coined the term genocide and advocated for genocide and advocated for the banning of genocide in international law. He noted that genocide unpunished, it often leads to more genocide. And the same thing could be said about domicide. The domicide left unpunished does lead to more genocide or more domicide. So what I think we need to do in a convention then is have a clear definition of domicide, perhaps defining it as the deliberate targeting and destruction of homes, um, paying homage to the fact that homes may be targeted, as, targeted and destroyed partially or totally. And we should talk about various methods, either the aerial bombardment of homes, employing explosives to destroy homes, bulldozing or raising homes to the ground through equivalent methods, imposing enforced vacancy, resettling members of one group into the homes of another, preventing lawful home occupancy, uh, systemic discrimination through the denial of building permits, maybe pro prolonging strife, uh, which prevents lawful repatriation of homes, or even forcing home dwellers to destroy their own homes or acts of a similar nature. It's not just the act of domicide that needs to be punished. It's the conspiracy to commit domicide. It's the direct and public incitement to commit domicide, uh, even an attempt or complicity in domicide. That should also be punished. So we believe that this convention against domicide it's a, it would be a, an entirely new piece of international law, but it augments and uh, some of the international laws that are on the books, and it fills a major protection gap that's existed for far too long. Hmm. I think that there's a lot of really powerful ways that that builds on things like the Genocide Convention, um, and in fact proves the argument that you both have been making throughout the book, throughout the interview, that uh, there is a gap, but also that that gap can be filled. Um, so thank you for uh, telling us more about that contribution. Bree, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that this convention really was born from Andrew and my kind of feeling of overwhelm, I think, with with the book, with writing the book and, and all these case examples that we were writing about. And we were coming up with the, you know, we were, we were you know, fleshing out this topology and then the the triggers and the context for what, what, what happens with domicide. And we felt like we couldn't just end the book there. <laughs> we felt like it was just too, uh, there was, there was too much there. We needed to give, give the reader something tangible and something that could be practically applied. So I think it was such a great, a natural 
natural kind of extension of the book um, and an, a natural next step. And I think it, it leaves the book on a kind of a, a little bit of a hopeful note that something can be done, that something uh, we can, you know, some, some sort of tangible output from this research, but also that can be integrated into uh, a broader understanding of what domicide is and, and potential um, way to end impunity for domicide as well. Well, so speaking of next steps, that brilliantly brings me to uh, my last question for the both of you, um, which is now that this book is done, I mean, there's obviously a lot of hints in what we've already discussed, um, but I'm wondering if you could each uh, tell the listeners about what you're working on now or next. For sure. So I think the the major project that we're working on right now, it has to do with the current war in Ukraine, that we're tracking domicide in Ukraine. And the data thus far, it paints a very clear picture of Russian aggression in Ukraine and indiscriminate and intentional Russian attacks on Ukrainian homes that... The Russians, they have employed uh, what are called dumb bombs or unguided munitions, um, either through artillery rocket fire or uh, indiscriminate targeting of cities and towns outside of a military nature. Um, You know, inept and poor military leadership and decision making, it structurally affords opportunities for the wanton destruction of homes outside of a military necessity. And we're seeing that all over Ukraine. So that's an indiscriminate attack that we're tracking. Uh, we're also tracking the, the problem of intentional attacks against Ukrainian homes that I alluded to the fact that some Russian commanders in Ukraine right now, they were in Syria previously, and certainly two of them uh, Russian General Sergei Sorovkin and uh, another one, Alexander Chaiko, um, they were in Syria. They directed terror campaigns against Syrian civilians, and now they're doing the exact same thing in Ukraine. In fact, Sorovkin, he's the, uh, the, the, the supreme commander of Russian forces in Ukraine right now. Both have had checkered military careers, uh, but here they are leading more war crimes. So widespread attacks against Ukrainian homes and public infrastructures, they are war crimes, to be clear, and they are designed to terrorize Ukrainians into submission and break the back of Ukrainian resistance. So that's one thing that we're tracking. We're also tracking what we call reciprocal domicide, that is, the domicide from one party to a conflict against another that affords the other an opportunity to say, hey, you're doing it to us, we're going to do it to you. It's the idea of an eye for an eye. Um, reciprocal domicide, that could uh, that could certainly be uh, seen in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, both sides have committed domicide against each other, and they often justify their domicidal attacks by saying, you did it to us, deal with it. Um, that's not good enough for the laws of armed conflict, and that's not good enough for human rights. So we're tracking really Ukraine and Nagorno-Karabakh right now, and I'm going to pass this over to Bree. We're also working on projects to locate domicide in international criminal law, as well as uh, at the United Nations. So Bree, I should uh, I should pass it to you now. 
Yeah, sure. So a few weeks ago, we were actually contacted by the office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And it was such a nice email to receive because they said that our book had given them additional inspiration and motivation to draft a UN report on ending impunity for severe housing rights violations. And uh, the report calls, among other th- among other things, to recognize system- systematic and severe housing rights violations as domicide. So it actually recognizes this term of domicide under international criminal law. And it urges states to end the impunity with which such grave human rights violations can continue to be met. And so Andrew and I were just thrilled to see that our work was being reflected in this way. Um, and the report actually um, re- references our book, which is, is quite uh, a, a really um, wonderful thing to see as, as scholars. We were invited to present our research at um, a UN side event with the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, um, Mr. Balakrishnan Rajagopal. And that side event occurred yesterday Yesterday, and we discussed opportunities for preventing domicide and ending impunity. And um, Mr. Rajagopal presented his report today uh, to the UN General Assembly. Um, and so it was uh, received by many countries in, in terms of how they viewed the issue, what their thoughts were on the issue, and what the next steps are. So we're really pleased that this Uh, that our book and our ideas have really um, kind of entered into this high-level policy discussion and and makes it seem more like something might change and something might happen in a positive way. One thing we're also planning is a a summit on extreme domicide where we want to present findings from our book and bring together researchers, practitioners, policymakers to share their experiences and and, um, their research and develop a plan for future research and policy change to tackle domicide. So we want it to be a networking event for people who are interested in this topic, but also who want to make some changes at the uh, local level, but also policy level. And we believe that a, a combination of kind of working directly with other researchers, practitioners, and policymakers might uh, lead to more attention on the issue and perhaps advance efforts to um, integrate a, or implement a, a, co- a convention against homicide as well. So these are some of the things that we're working on, Miranda. Very exciting things, and congratulations to have been reached out to by the UN and included in a report. That's brilliant. Um, so thank you for sharing all of those exciting uh, developments and next steps uh, with the listeners. I'm sure there will be lots of people who want to follow along with your work. Um, and for those listeners, a reminder that the book's title um, is From Bureaucracy to Bullets, Extreme Domicide and the Right to Home, just out in 2022 from Rutgers University Press. Bree and Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and sharing your insights and telling us all these amazing things. Thanks so much for having us, Miranda. It was a pleasure to discuss this with you. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Miranda.